The following is for information purposes only and should in no way be construed as investment advice. This episode is brought to you in conjunction with Progressive Equity Research Limited, offering objective analysis and management access across the market. All the views expressed on this podcast are the private views of the participants. They are expressly not the views of Progressive Equity Research. For today's episode, I'm joined by the Maverick investor, Andrew Hollingworth. Andrew is the founder of the investment advisory firm, Holland Advisors, and the fund manager for the VT Holland Advisors Equity Fund. Andrew does things differently and is self-taught in his investment approach. He is mainly attracted to businesses that are run by owner-managers and businesses that enjoy scale economies that they can share with their customers. His ambition is to buy high-quality businesses priced as poor-quality businesses. And as such, Andrew debunks the growth and value style distinction. In today's episode, Andrew talks about what he looks for in an owner-manager. He discusses why he backed UK retail maverick Mike Ashley of Fraser's, formerly Sports Direct, and pub operator Tim Martin of JD Weatherspoon. He also discusses how he assesses corporate governance and generational change in owner-managed companies, how he assesses a business's ability to allocate capital, and how he considers macro factors in his investment process. In so doing, he draws on his investments in companies such as Ryanair and Charles Schwab as examples. I've been following Andrew's updates and research notes for quite a while now and have come to appreciate his unique investment style and methodology. Please enjoy my conversation with the maverick, Andrew Hollingworth. Hi, Andrew, and thanks for joining us today. Can you just start by giving us an overview of your background and how it shaped your approach to investing? I joined the city as an equity sort of junior in the summer of 1987, And I suppose the two sort of traits from that are one that I didn't do a degree. I didn't have the training that degree gave. And I also didn't get sort of formal training when I started. I started in sort of clerical jobs and worked my way sort of through and up and did my analyst exams and all that sort of stuff. So I sort of learned on the job and learned by making mistakes and all the rest of it and learned from others all around me without the formal training, without the degree. And also that was a formative period. So 1987 to 1992 was a period where markets generally went down and where people got fired. I spent 10 years of my life between, I don't know, let's say 22 and 32, where I, in hindsight, I was sort of Mr. Market, basically. I was a stockbroker and I built models on companies and built spreadsheets and asked questions about cash flow, whatever else. But no one told me what questions to ask. And I just sort of found some numbers added up and some other numbers didn't, if you like. And I suppose the reason why that's, you know, it's an interesting period of my life. I worked with some really smart people. I learned a lot and so on. But I was doing that in a very unstructured way. I mean, I probably hadn't heard of Warren Buffett till I was 25, maybe 27. So when I then really picked up Buffett's books, Margin of Safety, Templeton, all of that, which I did in my early 30s, I was like, oh, my God. This was a real big moment for me because then I then realized how much time I was wasting, how much needless energy I and half of or 90% of investors were expending on sort of turnover and modeling oil companies that you can't model and all that sort of stuff. 
And that was a really significant moment for me, realizing that there was a better way to do this. And so the investment approach I've got today has been very much, you know, obviously everything, your life experience builds who you are, but it's very much formulated from what I've learned from the great investors and from therefore trying not to make the mistakes that Mr. Market makes and I probably was making earlier in my career. So how would you describe your investment approach? I talk about wanting to own you know, great companies run by great managers and buying them at great prices. And I think a lot of people heartily nod with all three. But when you then explain to them what buying at great prices really means, in reality, it means buying a company when everyone else is probably telling you it's a bad company. That's a much, much more difficult thing to do. Nestle or Diageo or Unilever or whatever else, everyone agrees they're good companies. So you're not going to get them at great prices. So if you're going to try and tick the third of those boxes, you have to understand what makes a great company and a great manager and be brave enough to make that decision at a point in time that the chances are everyone else around you is telling you you're a fool. A few other bits I'd add to that. I'm trying to look for businesses that excel in what I call operate, generate, and allocate. So the great operators in their field, market shares, market position, brands, call it what you like. They generate good returns on capital and then they allocate the capital well. You know, I love owner managers, and I know I'm sure we'll talk about owner managers in a minute, but it's become a real sort of driving force of a lot of the companies that I invest in and either look to investing in these days. But for me, the aim of the exercise is to compound your capital. It isn't to have a collection of beautiful companies that you can show to your investors and say, aren't they beautiful? So some of that compounding will come, or the large majority of that compounding will come from the underlying compounding of the companies. But now and again, some compounding might come from the fact that you bought a business incredibly cheaply. So are you a growth investor, a value investor, or a contrarian? The whole growth and value debate is a bit of a sort of, I find it a bit pointless, if you like. I think it was Buffett or somebody recently said that growth is a determinant of value or it's a factor that drives value. So you can't look at one without the other. And that's exactly where I am. You know, this is a, an audio call, so it's not a, I can't show you a picture. But if I could show you a picture, it would be a Venn diagram with two circles where they overlap just in the middle. And that Venn diagram would have the left hand circle would say great companies, and the right hand circle would say price like bad companies. And if all of the companies you own in your portfolio are in the left hand circle because they're great companies, well, that's fine, but that's the Diageos and the Unilevers and all the rest of it. But what you're trying to do is buy companies at the point of the overlap where a great company is priced like a bad company. And as you say, you don't want to be a contrarian for the sake of being a contrarian, but you are probably going to have to have quite a lot of independence of thought and contrarian thinking at the moment you might make your investment. What do you look for when you're considering committing capital to an owner-manager? I think the main first thing is proven compounding. If I don't spend a great deal of time, but I look at this person's history, do they have a proven beyond doubt ability to have compounded capital at a really good rate in the past? Management teams that present pretty pictures and great IPO documents and turnarounds and all the rest of it are two a penny. You know, you can listen to them all day, every day in the city of London and Wall Street if you want to do that. But all of that is crystal ball gazing. It's predicting the future. And that's great. But you know, the future is uncertain. The past is certain. And so I think if you start off by going, I don't care what everyone else thinks, 
how has this person been at making money up to now? I would say generally, you want that compounding to have happened in the same skill set and hopefully in exactly the same entity as you're thinking about investing. And then I think you're looking for excellence in the field. You know, are they very good at what they do? How well do they understand market power? How well do they communicate? How well do they evolve and pivot the business? It's all that sort of stuff. So there's lots of things that I think are intangible that help you decide whether that person is still talented or not. But the first hurdle is what does a cold, hard look at history suggest to me about this person? A manager in a company that I'm fond of and think is just fascinating business to talk about and understand is Fraser's Mike Ashley, what used to be called Sports Direct. Mike Ashley basically stopped speaking to one-on-one investors said, I'm not doing that anymore. Don't like you all. We don't get on. I'll do one meeting after my results. And so I went to the stock exchange and it was basically Mike Ashley on one side of the room with his finance director and you know, I think the now chief executive, Mike Murray. And the whole of the rest of the city in terms of the great and the good of CIOs and heads of equities and senior fund managers, every person that you could think was sitting on the other side of the room. And Mike Ashley was sort of presenting this slightly disjointed, incoherent rant about his business. And the people on the other side of the room were getting somewhat agitated about the fact that he wasn't really explaining his business very well. And so I looked at that and thought to myself, well, I've got all of these unbelievable IQs on this side of the room, and they're all they're worth probably hundreds of millions between them. And then I looked at Mike Ashley, who was the person who sort of wasn't articulating his business terribly well, but he was worth more than 10 times the whole of the other side of the room put together. I literally in that moment said to myself, how did this happen? How did he get here? And that takes you down the route of tolerating mavericks and being open to what they can give you rather than insisting that they communicate and allocate capital in the way that you think they should, which I think is the biggest mistake that investors make. How do you assess whether the maverick you're investing in is a moneymaker or, or just a bit crazy? So in my cash's case, I find it easier to perhaps do by way of example. So I have gone to every public meeting, both by way of city results presentation or AGM than anyone could go to in the last five years or so. So I've made sure that I've not missed out on anything that they have told people in a sort of meeting format. So I've heard all sorts of different things. But one of the things I remember is someone asking him, so you've put 50 million quid in a stake of a business in America. Why have you done that? And in the process of trying to buy department stores and all the rest of it, why would you do that at this moment in time? You know, what's the distraction? Mike Ashley, you know, these sort of people tend, if you get them talking, they tend to talk from the heart or the hip or whatever you call it, as in they, what's in their mind is what you get. You don't get a sanitized version that's gone through five investor relations advisors before it gets to you. And what he basically said is he said, it's exactly what my board said. They said, Mike, why are you doing this? We don't need this aggravation. We don't need the questions that's going to come from investors about this. He said, but that's who I am. I throw some mud at some walls and some of it sticks and some of it doesn't. And some of it is 50 million pounds that becomes zero. And some of it is 50 million pounds that becomes the next great leg of growth for this business. So what I'm getting at there is just one little thing, which is I think these people think about capital very differently to how most investors do in the sense that for them, they'll put a 50 million pound chip down and gamble it. And if it becomes a big part of the business, great. If they lose the whole thing, they don't worry about it too much. That's a very different, almost speculative way of going about it than necessarily the way that 
the sort of careful, more steady she goes away that, say, a next or Simon Morrison goes about it. I think that's sort of an example for you, but it just starts to get you in the head of, that isn't the answer that I perhaps wanted to hear, but it actually gets me inside his head better to understand the sort of person he is and why the outcomes he tends to get from investments are zero, 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 a hundred times zero, zero. Years ago, I remember talking about Sky with somebody and Sky bought the stake in ITV and it was causing a lot of confusion for people about why they'd bought the stake in ITV. And in the end, I think, I can't remember, I think they either sold it at a loss or didn't make very much money out of it, whatever else it was. And I was thinking, well, actually, in the grand scheme of capital allocation of Sky and how they'd built the business and all the other stuff they'd done with capital, the ITV stake didn't matter very much. But ultimately, it gave them a bit of control over competitor for a while. And I just think sometimes in striving of perfection in allocation or whatever else it may be, we can miss a big picture. Now, if a company is serially making investments that are multiples of its size and serious, you know, in a serial way gambling the company, well, that could be a disaster. But if a company that generates a lot of cash uses some of that cash for organic expansion areas that can either be uber successful or not very successful, well, we need to look at that in the course of time and decide whether that sort of win some, lose some is actually working out to our advantage. And if it is, well, then let the owner manager get on with it. What about corporate governance? How do you go about governing someone like Mike Ashley? The slight problem I have with the sort of ESG camp is that some of the letters are more important than others. So I think the E bit is very important. I think the S bit is pretty important. And I think the G bit isn't anything like as important as everybody makes out. It's just looking at outputs of companies that have done well, have beaten peers, often have a family control or an owner manager or whatever else. And yet it's exactly those types of companies that fall foul of governance. So, so that sort of says to you there's something slightly wrong here in the sense that the governance rules are stopping investors potentially investing in businesses that might be the most successful businesses. I'll be really honest about it. You know, Mike actually introduced Mike Murray in a meeting about five years ago and I was there. And I thought the same as everybody else. I thought, what is this 25-year-old bloke doing getting involved in running Mike Ashley's business? And as time has gone on, Mike Murray has done a fantastic job in terms of bringing premium pricing, branding, elevation, fantastic relationships with the brands into Sports Direct. And there's no way in the world that Mike Ashley has that skill. And when you speak to the finance director and other people, there are not other people in that business that had that skill because they're very, very good, but in their own words, at selling cheap socks, they're not very good at premium positioning a brand in their stores. Now, I'm not saying that somebody else couldn't have brought those skills. And I'm sure there are other people in the world that had those same skills. Maybe we don't like the fact that there is a family relationship but get on with it. And for me, what was quite interesting is the pivot and how that pivoted in the sense that Mike Ashley basically had a poor relationship with Nike because all he'd ever done was discount brands. And he had to make a decision to pivot the business towards a more premium pricing model. Now, Mike Murray ultimately implemented that, but Mike Ashley had to say, on you go, spend the money, knock yourself out, you know, build some stores that the brands love. So I give credit to both of them, actually, for what they've done in that regard. I think what happens in the next two or three years is pretty easy in the sense of how strong profits are going to recover. What happens in years four, five, and six, that's a bit more uncertain at this stage because that depends on what sort of person Mike Murray really sort of matures into. But I just think you've got to look at each one of these situations differently. Another example for you, but it's a company called Swatch. 
I did some lot of research on swaps three or four years ago. I really liked the historical family that had built the swaps business up. Built a lot of it up organically. The second generation of family managers then came in and maybe the third generation. But they then got much more acquisitive and were buying other businesses at what I thought were quite high prices. And I just didn't feel were, you know, looking after the business and the shareholders and the return to the shareholders as well. So I had a less favorable attitude towards the next generation. You just got to judge each situation independently. To get to your point, I think the perfect combination, as in the one that the set of circumstances that is the most exciting, is when the owner manager is still on board, is still running the business, is still as motivated as he ever was, and is absolutely ingrained in how this business operates both day to day, strategically, and how he thinks about competitors. That's what you really, really want. And a good example of that, which we haven't mentioned so far, is Ryanair, actually. So I'm a big investor in Ryanair, and okay. Michael Leary, yep. obviously, is a perfect example of that. So it's critical here to be able to assess the ability to allocate capital. How do you do that? You need to do it over time. You need to look at as much of what they've done as what they say, and you need to have an open mind as to what is good allocation. I feel pretty good about my level of understanding of what's a good share buyback and what's a bad share buyback. Now, not every investor may have that structure, but I feel I have had that because I've studied people like Buffett and others in quite close detail. So for me, seeing where genuine excess capital is being used to bolster returns because you're buying your shares back, but with excess capital that the business doesn't require, can make a sort of 5% top-line business into a 13% compounding of intrinsic value. And that's sort of what happens at Next, basically. I spent a lot of time looking at US stocks, and I think that the allocation of capital in the US is just, it's hard to articulate why, but it's just so much better than it is in the UK. No one's hung up on paying dividends. Everybody gets that if you've got genuine excess cash and you buy your stock back, that's a per share accretive to the business. So I mean, I've got a lot of companies, I think, you know, someone like Schwab that I own, got a really clear buyback philosophy. So I think that bit of the allocation is quite clear. The less clear bit of the allocation is when you're investing in a competitor, as in for M&A, when you're investing in yourself. And I think that you just have to be open-minded about and, and slightly look through the maverick's eyes to say, well, why are they doing? So an example I'll give you is Schwab. So we first started looking at Schwab, I don't know, three or four years ago now, maybe, maybe four or five years ago. And Schwab had spent a lot of money building up its balance sheet so that it could take deposits. And it was just basically saying to investors that we sort of done the bulk of that. So we were paying out 25% profits. We can now pay out or buy back stock with sort of 75% of our profits. So we'd sort of got ready for that to happen. And we're thinking, oh, this could be a much cheaper share because it's still growing. It's still a wonderful business, you know, scale economy share business. But now it's spending more. It's got more excess cash to buy its stock back, which I think the stock market or my conclusion then was the stock market would like. And that didn't happen. But the reason it didn't happen is because Schwab cut commissions of buying and selling stocks in America to zero. Its competitor's share price collapsed, and it bought its biggest competitor, TD Ameritrade. So is that good or is that bad allocation of capital? So I suppose the follow-on here is how do you know when a business has surplus capital and how much that surplus capital is in the business? For me, what's really important is if I can understand not just the profits grows and the compounding of the business, but exactly where all the money went, basically. 
So some businesses, when they grow, it costs them a lot of capital to grow because you're deploying capital and fixed assets to do so. Some businesses, when they grow, it doesn't cost them anything to grow because you've got fixed assets that you buy like planes for Ryanair, but you've also got massive negative working capital. And what you need to do is in every single company, you need to sort of be testing it historically. So in Ryanair's case, they're a sort of 20 to 25% ROE business, and they've grown really fast. But they've also given back 70% of net income to shareholders. Well, that's actually impossible. That's impossible. The only way it's possible is because the negative working capital creates so much capital when they grow. So their customers and their suppliers help them fund the growth in the balance sheet. Now, I've done a little bit of thinking about the business model of Ryanair to get that in your head, if you like. So one, you're testing that historically. And then when you're looking at it in the future, you're thinking, right, well, how much genuine capital does this company need to grow? And then in other companies, there might be a leverage ratio that you're happy with. And a company like Ashstead or a company like Weatherspoons, there is leverage in the business. But the leverage in the business, we think, is very sustainable and very reasonable for different reasons. But you know, in J.D. Weatherspoons' case, because they've got a lot of freehold assets. But if you think that is the case, and if the leverage ratio stays the same on a higher level of profitability, well, then actually you're able to get the banks to fund some of your growth as well. That is the Ashdead business model. Ashdead's returns to equity shareholders have been supercharged by that. That's not leveraging up. That's not being having a more risky business tomorrow than it was today. It's just a role of the existing capital structure and all the different parties that fund that capital structure. And by doing that, I then get a feel for what is excess cash and what is not excess cash. I know you're an investor in JD Weatherspoon, run by True Maverick and uh, Tim Martin. Can you just run us through your investment thesis, please? So Weatherspoons and Tim Martin, by extension, are basically the sort of Walmart, Costco of the pub sector. They are the everyday low price player in pubs and restaurants. You know, Charlie Munger once talked about something. You know, it's called deferred gratification. Way talked about, you know, you know, the really good businesses have deferred gratification. I.e., they are putting off making a profit today because they can make a, you know, a slightly bigger profit tomorrow, hopefully, or a, you know, well, maybe the equal profit tomorrow. And that's Costco. The difficult bit comes is this company has had quite a lot of utility inflation way before now. We're talking two or three years ago, and a certain amount of wage inflation during all the minimum wage spikes or the rest of it. Irrespective of COVID, it's had those things going on just prior to COVID. And any normal company would have just said, right, well, that means we've got to put prices up by 5% to cover all of that. They didn't do that. So what Weatherspoons has done is the gap between its pricing and its competitors' pricing has just got bigger and bigger and bigger. So we're now at probably, I don't know, in a basket of drinks and food, 30 to 35% cheaper maybe than you know competitor pubs in the surrounding area. If that gap was 28%, Weatherspoons' profits might be double what they are today. But they haven't done that. That isn't a decision they've made. They'd rather keep the customer throughput high. They'd rather keep the customer relationship good at a time when COVID shut the pubs and cost of living crisis is there. And the other slight difference between something like a Weatherspoons and a Ryanair is that they don't spell this out. It is there. And if you go digging and you go asking and you go to the pubs and the rest of it, that message of pricing differential and real focus on customer value is there. But they are not spelling it out that clearly. So, for example, they're recently 
asked about cost inflation. They said, well, actually, we're pretty relaxed about cost inflation because we own our freeholds. We've had staff have been with us a long time and they're paid well because we went way over the minimum wage some years ago. And we've hedged all our utilities out until this time next year. Rather than the analysts say, well, that's great, well done. The analysts went, well, hang on a minute. When your hedge runs off, how big a jump to your costs is that? To which the answer was about 60 million. Well, the reason why the wet spin share price is falling every day is because 60 million is basically what they've made in a good year. So the Simon Wolfson answer to that would be, well, it's 60 million, but we're planning on putting prices up by half a percent, so I'll cover it. That's not what Weatherspoons have chosen to do or have answered. So we're in a slightly strange situation of having a company that is, I think, loved and revered by the customer now in terms of the value they're giving. But that relationship is not the same in the stock market at this moment in time. So it's a very interesting disconnect, which I think will be very interesting to see how that pans itself out. What these businesses I've described, Costco, Amazon, Aldi, Weatherspoons, whatever else, what they rely on is throughput. So they will sell you coffee or beer or whatever else at a cheaper price than somebody else. But the only way they can do that is if their asset turns are good because they sell three yeah. times as much coffee as anybody else. So they need the throughput. And what's difficult for Weatherspoons is that the recovery in traffic post-COVID is yet to be fully achieved. They've had a recovery in their youth traffic, but they just haven't had the full recovery in their beer drinking older traffic. And that means that that asset turn that you need because they've got big pubs and they want volume isn't there yet. You're obviously a passionate stock picker. How do you think about the macro when you're investing? So people go on our website, you know, and by all means, if you want to sign up for free research, you can, you can get it on the website. And anything we write on macro, we give away for free because I don't think it's worth a great deal. There's lots and lots of opinions on macro. But in any of those pieces, you'll read the stuff I've written before. And I've often described macro as like the wing mirrors in the car. So yeah. I'm driving a car going forward. I'm looking out of the front windscreen. I'm trying not to crash into things and, and all the rest of it. I'm turning left, I'm turning right. But now and again, I look in my mirrors just to make sure there's not a hurricane behind me. And that, I think, is my attitude towards macro. The main job is to find and analyze and fully understand wonderful compounding opportunities, you know, hopefully run by owner managers and all the rest of it. Now and again, you know, you need to keep an eye out for risks that could really derail you. I ended up going to quite a big cash position pre-COVID just because I thought COVID was mispriced. I didn't do anything around the time of Ukraine just because I perhaps misunderestimated how long it would last, whatever else. And also my tendency is not to change the portfolio. The COVID change I made was a very unusual thing to do. I mean, obviously, I'd keep an eye on that sort of area. But ultimately, you know, you're trying to look for businesses that can do well in either environment, i.e. inflation or deflation. And, you know, Ryanair's currently, I think, going to have a very strong tailwind of good profitability that comes from stronger pricing. But Ryanair, for the previous 15 years, has still been a great investment. And it's been a great investment despite the fact that prices for airfare travel have gone down. And that's because the volume that it reported during a strong deflationary low growth environment in Europe is still very good. You know, if you are the lowest cost producer in your industry, you should be in a position to win for 10 or 20 years. So worrying about whether an inflation or deflation environment doesn't matter that much. And I'd also say, I mean, I spend very, very little time, almost no time thinking about interest rates. Because if one of my businesses is going to fail or succeed on the basis of 5% interest rates versus 3% interest rates, well, why the dickens do I own it in the first place? 
So clearly the world is, you know, the investment world is adjusting to a higher level of interest rates. And that has a big effect on utilities. It has some effect on banks. It has a big effect on REITs and on long growth, high duration things. Yeah. But those aren't things that I'm generally investing in or attracted to. So I tend to stay out of the way. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us today. Could you just finish off by letting people know how they can get hold of you, how they can find out more about you and your fund, how they can get access to you online? First thing first, thank you very much, Jeremy. It's a very interesting question. You know, your Maverick podcast is a good one. And I think you've touched on stuff that I love talking about, which is a bit of investment process, but particularly the quirky bit that drives the Mavericks that people don't really spend enough time on. So well done for what you're doing. And thank you. In terms of where you can find out about me. I mean, we're a small company and therefore the website really is, I mean, I wrote pretty much all the content on the website. That really is about us. It's not a sort of corporate boring website. On there, there's a load of stuff that's free research you can download. You can sign up to get free research in the future. There's even an investor education section on there, which is quite good for people who are new to the industry and want to find books to read and podcasts to watch and all the rest of it. On the website, somewhere to link to my Twitter handle as well. So if you want to follow me on Twitter, you're more than welcome to do that as well. It's a very good website. I will put the link in the episode notes to this podcast. Andrew, thanks again. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of In the Company of Mavericks, please subscribe at our website, inthecompanyofmavericks.com, where we would appreciate your feedback and any suggestions you might have for future episodes. 